This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 17th of October 2017. A podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is John, and here's my co-host, Dave. G'day, mate. <laughs> Still in Australian <laughs> culture, feeling, sunshine, whatever. Indeed, indeed. Um, so this, this is part two of our uh, our Sydney recap. And we're really sort of covering now some of the sessions that happened uh, a little bit later on in the uh, the DataWorks Summit. So the first one here is um, Simon, Simon Ball's session on solving a cyber at scale. And this is uh, somewhat unusually for Simon. This is this was intended to be sort of quite a um, a high level uh, session on really why cyber and big data is is a good fit. There are some some interesting sort of statistics scattered throughout Simon's presentation. Um, where why some of these things are so so critical and so off the moment now. If you've been following um, the, the news in uh, in technology, or in fact just the news generally, uh, you can't help but uh, see there are a huge number of um, breaches, um, data leakages, um, and general cybersecurity threats and attacks that are happening on an ever increasing um, basis. The the particular slide that I'm thinking about here is slide nine where it's literally a trillion-dollar market. Um, you know, five Bitcoins for 100 million LinkedIn accounts. A distributed denial-of-service attack to hire a botnet is you know, about $5 an hour. To defend against a distributed denial-of-service attack is you know, at least $40,000 an hour. The core elements around cybersecurity are largely against the good guys. It's just uh, we're, we're already fighting an uphill battle. Continues on talking about some of the uh, some of the, uh, the other core concepts within, you know, typical cybersecurity solutions today, and then you know really moving on to real time. And while real time is particularly important, the the world of cybersecurity is very adversarial. Things are happening at a very uh, rapid pace. People are attempting to sort of uh, gain access to environments. Or you know, spearfish users with you know emails to get them to click on links to install malware. It's happening very quickly. As soon as that malware is downloaded and installed, there'll be a command and control link established, and people will start you know yanking files off as quickly as they can if if the connectivity is there. If you don't track that immediately, if you don't catch that immediately, it's already too late. Where things are trying to head is towards giving this single view of, of risk and single view of uh, security across both all of the security silos, but also then moving moving wider than that. So covering things like uh, finance, like HR, like CRM systems, um, you know, IoT systems, adding geolocation information to that. So giving a far more holistic view of the both of the problem space and of all of your data. Towards the end of his session, Simon then really starts to talk about Apache Metron, how it addresses a lot of these concerns, how it, it is able to deliver this sort of this real time, um, this real time notion, and how you know 
you are able to use some of the core technologies underpinning NiFi, Storm, Kafka. And really, Metron delivers you the plumbing. It delivers you the infrastructure to do cybersecurity. It delivers you that that platform. And then on top of that, you can build a lot of your own um, intelligence, uh, a lot of your own profiling of your users, your data, entities within your environment. So that was uh, that's largely sort of Simon's overall conversation. Again, I'd recommend to uh, go and watch it. He talks about uh, botnets and being attacked and uh, very good session, very good introduction to cybersecurity, why it matters. If you're in the big data space but not in cybersecurity and, and want to understand what some of the concerns are, very good session for that sort of level of that sort of level of understanding. But it, it's not the kind of session if you already understand cyber and and maybe want to get deeper into Metron, there are other more detailed sessions for that sort of thing. Yeah, the one slide that uh, was uh, I found interesting is uh, 29, where mm -hmm. it actually positions uh, Metron in the rest of the ecosystem. Yeah. And it doesn't replace your existing Palo Alto snorts, whatever you have there. It just uh, serves as a, yeah, land all the data coming out of those uh, tools into the security data lake and do more with it. But you yeah. still need your fire eyes, your firewalls, VPNs. They're all still there. Absolutely. And it's that's why it's it's a very consistent big data story. I mean, we, we talk about in, uh, you know, we've have been having conversations um, for, for years now about enterprise data warehouse um, sort of optimizations. Um, and, you know, very rarely will a data lake replace an EDW. It's, it's for augmenting it. It's yeah. for going into... Um, Uh, you know, going, keeping longer retention time, moving cold data off, bringing data in from other sources that the EDW can't or isn't optimized to handle. So really very, very focused towards that, that augmentation side of things. And so it, it, again, it's very, very consistent sort of big data story. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes, good session. Um, if you, if you haven't dealt with cybersecurity before in a big data concept, um, very good, or big data context, I would say, very good session to to, to listen to in more detail. Yeah, it's a little less on the tech side, a bit more on the positioning, let's say. Yeah, very much so, very much so. Um, so following on from that, there was a session by Telstra. So Telstra are a Australian uh, telco, um, and they actually then presented basically they've implemented a complete uh, security operation center, in fact, a pair of security operation centers um, delivering or built on Apache Metron. They're also running uh, essentially cybersecurity as a service. Uh, and if you just do a Google search for Telstra and Metron, you'll see a variety of articles that have come out in the last month or so um, sort of detailing more about uh, what Telstra have been doing. Now, unfortunately, the the slides themselves are are not available for this particular talk. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the Sydney Summit sessions um, weren't recorded. So 
I don't have uh, a lot of information around this, but what I can say is it was a it was an excellent session. It was a session, in fact, that was so good, um, it enthralled me so much that I, I actually stopped taking notes right at the very beginning. <laughs> so not very useful to our listeners, I must admit. But I did capture um, a few of the uh, a few of the highlights. So they they had a few sort of statistics that they they brought up through the through the session um one of which was around um essentially they had around about per per device so per firewall device they had around about 10 million events um and by using um the the profiler within metron so they were using uh, things like bloom filters um, baselining with T-digests, um, and these are sort of simple statistical uh, constructs that can be used within the, the, the Metron profiler, and some simple sort of stellar enrichments. They were able to get 10 million events down to 17 that were useful, interesting, and should be sort of looked at. So a very, very sort of impressive uh, ratio uh, sort of distilling down to really what matters. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've talked about um, you know, these things pushing you know, thousands, tens of thousands in some cases alerts through to a security operations center. You know, being able to order, reduce that by several orders of magnitude is very, very impressive. Um, I'm hoping at some point that there will be a, a version of the slides that will be shared out. And if that's the case, we'll update the show notes um, and, and maybe mention it in a follow-on session. But yeah. very, very good session. Um, Telstra are doing some really interesting things with, with Metron. Um, and, you know, it's in production. It's it's being used today. They have customers onboarded onto their platform. And, uh, yeah, look forward to hearing more about, about how they progress. And, uh, Interestingly, they're also very focused on contributing back to the community. So they've they've uh, put a lot of effort into some of the new user interfaces around Metron, the investigator UIs, and things like that. So really, really good session. Um, sadly, no recordings or or slides that we can we can refer back to. But uh, yeah, interesting to see what happens next. Looking forward to a, a future session presented by them. Yep. Yeah, too bad there's no recording. It's always uh, useful for people that weren't happy, lucky enough to be there. Very much so. Um, so moving on from moving on from cybersecurity now, and uh, we mentioned in our previous episode uh, when we were covering uh, Hadoop 3.0 that uh, it was sort of, that was, if you like, the the daddy session for lots of its, uh, or the mummy and daddy session even for lots of its, uh, lots of its child sessions. So one of the, the sort of sub sessions of that was really around, uh, Apache Hadoop yarn past, present and future. So really the, the sort of the first part of it was all around, um, introducing, uh, what yarn is, why it's important, where it came from, um, and uh, we probably don't need to go into too much detail around that. I would hope, um, but essentially, yarn, yet another resource negotiator. Yes, that's really what it stands for. 
and you know, really focused on doing exactly that, negotiating resources so that multiple jobs uh, can run on a single cluster. Yarn is essentially what delivers multi-tenancy to Hadoop. Um, so, you know, the, it goes, the, the slides go through a, a nice sort of historical picture of what's, what's happened to Yarn, how it's evolved, you know, it goes through very much the sort of batch, batch interactive, batch interactive and real time. And then there's, there's quite a nice slide that, um, covers the different GA releases of various different bits of code all the way back from, uh, October, 2013, through to sort of August 2017 and where different pieces of functionality sort of were added to various different points. But in fact, as, as Jon pointed out uh, last episode, you can see that a lot of the, the later uh, releases, there are good chunks of it that just talk about stabilization, um, stabilization, sort of bug fixing, performance improvements, things like that. And then the the three dot branch is all about getting the alphas uh, out there. Mm-hmm. So, um, but what does the what does the sort of the present and the future look like? So there's um, really the the last sort of the the two dot two dot eight release was around putting sort of uh, different queues and different sort of first in, first out, or FIFO policies and policies and priorities as well. So you being able to have multiple different applications uh, within a single queue, but actually having prioritization for those within the queue. Now, this was a little bit unclear there is a Jira that's referenced here, and I would it's one that is on my list of things to uh, to go and read up about, but it's Yarn 1963 uh, that goes into more detail around uh, the priorities. There's a few slides on from that that try to to give a more complete picture, but i I don't personally find the the descriptions here particularly useful, so I'm hoping that the the JIRA itself will give um, a lot more uh, more detailed information. Yeah, for people following on with us, we're at slide 17 now, 17, 18. Yeah, so 17, 18, um, and then really on to 19. So 19 is now talking about per-queue policy-driven scheduling. And again, the, the sort of... You can see what I'm assuming these green blobs are supposed to be um, individual queues and, you know, relating to uh, so three child queues and a parent queue um, and sort of the where we are today, some course policies between them, um, one scheduling algorithm across all of them and, you know, very difficult to um, experiment with any one sort of queue because you've only got one scheduling algorithm across the entire cluster. Um, Where things are heading is you can apply different policies to different queues. So you can have first in, first out. So obviously that means the the first jobs that get submitted get priority 
Um, and you can have that on two of your queues, and then you can have uh, a sort of uh, a user fairness uh, policy um, against uh, another particular queue. And this makes a lot of sense. They, they split these queues out in the example as in ingestion and batch. And if, in fact, that does make a lot of sense. The ingestion, if you've got uh, a job that's coming um, you know, come in first, you probably want that to complete before other ingestion jobs complete because there's probably some some uh, relation between the data that's ingested earlier versus data that's ingested later. So it would make a lot of sense to do that. Um, yeah. yeah, this is kind of the whole discussion that's been going on for a while about the capacity schedule versus uh, fair shares uh, scheduler where people kind of wanted to have a yarn that does either one or the other and a choice between the two. Yeah. That never came around, but this actually gives you more flexibility because you don't have to make a choice on the whole of the cluster. You can just per queue say, this one has to work this way, this one has to work that way. What isn't clear in this picture, though, is if you look at the picture, the bottom three green balls, you have the choice between five or five of use of fair share. Okay, understand that. Mm -hmm. But how is that top one running? Because could I have a top one running fair share and having queues underneath running f capacity? <laughs> yeah. Don't there's some, know. I don't know, there's some the, the, uh, magic yeah. going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think this is definitely, and in fact, that's the it's the case for a lot of these um, these sessions, is that there is so much content covered the 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 sort of the recurring comment I I sort of was voicing to myself as I was listening is must look up this Jira must look up this Jira must look up this Jira and I think that's there's so much changing that uh, and but the, the presentations give you a high level view but in some cases they create more questions than they answer I also think that this kind of stuff isn't documentable if that's a word. Because the different ways of flexibility offered here, uh, for me, a queuing system is supposed to give you a predictability. Yeah. I set it up so I am definitely certain that this will happen in this fashion. By adding this much flexibility, if users are actually going to try and deploy all this flexibility, I'm not sure if it's going to stay predictable enough to be useful. So sometimes it's a case of not necessarily using all options available but making a good choice of what options make sense for you and try to keep it somewhat simple yeah yeah and you know on on that particular topic you know moves through to reservations mm -hmm. um which is something i've seen happening uh more and more on multi-tenant systems is yeah. people have um, very high priority workloads but they only need to run at certain times of the day. So the certain um, workloads that are focused around regulatory compliance, they will have received batches of data throughout the day, and then at, you know they need to have, for regulatory compliance reasons, a certain report generated at you know 9 a.m. at the very latest each day. So data will have been dribbling in throughout the day. They can't really stop. They can't really process it as it's coming in because they need the whole day's picture there, but then they need to very rapidly process all that data as fast as possible. Then after that, their requirement dies off until the next day. It's just, again, the same sort of cycle, dribble data in through the day, very fast processing, but fast batch rather than 
you know, real time. And so what people have been doing so far, to my knowledge, is really fiddling around with the capacity scheduler queues through scripting or API calls. And so they have one set of um, capacity scheduler queue setups that operate between some set of hours. And then, I mean, you can have it as simple as a cron job that runs at various times of the day to alter your capacity scheduler queues. Well, that's a little bit clunky. And I think the, the idea behind the, behind this uh, reservations uh, concept is that you can have that same sort of thing, but have it natively supported uh, within the yarn queue. So you can reserve um, chunks of capacity at certain times um, within the yarn capacity scheduler queues. Yeah, so the slide itself in particular talks about how they now integrated it with RM failover and HSA in a high availability environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then really it moves on to the story of what's changing with Yarn uh, with, with 3.0. Um, now, the first thing, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how, how this changes over time. But there are a, a large number of customers, a large number of users out there with clusters made up of you know, many thousands of nodes. In fact, it calls out here, you know, Yahoo, Twitter, LinkedIn, Microsoft. Um, the largest single clusters uh, over the last few years have been between six and 8,000 nodes. I know Yahoo has had has got several of around about the eight thousand node mark. They themselves are still running about you know thirty thirty five thousand nodes as a whole. But the largest single cluster has been in that sort of six to eight thousand node range. And there's been a, a push for um, how do we how do we increase that single cluster uh, number? Because any time that you have multiple clusters, and we have we've we've had a uh, a recent session, in fact, on on this. You know, how do you decide? You know, one cluster or many clusters. A lot of organisations are looking to boost that single cluster node to hundreds of hundred thousand nodes, and in fact, even larger than that. Mm-hmm. But you know, the reality is that the number of organisations interested in that, at least today, I would think is fairly small. It is, though, it is the, the Yahoo's, the Twitter's, the LinkedIn's, uh, the Microsoft's of this world. Um, while I'd love to believe that everyone needs 100,000 nodes of Luke, <laughs> it's, it's probably not the case. Um, but this goes through um, um, sort of how, um, how we can improve uh, the scale of yarn and how yarn can be improved to deal with this and go through a bit more detail as it co- continues on. But essentially things like uh, federation, you know, one uh, multiple smaller clusters behaving as if they were a single larger cluster and things like that. Yeah, the thing that I'm hopefully thinking about then is having HDFS span multiple clusters. Yeah. I haven't seen any details on that. No, no, yeah. Federation of clusters. I mean, in if you have a SAN or a cloud environment, and you already have your storage shared among multiple clusters already, but that's a bit of the behind the scenes deployment uh, details. Yeah, being able to do this in a federated because uh, that there's something called federated HCFS, which is totally different. Yeah. So, yeah, well, yeah, one can, well, we can hope. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So. 
again, some of the some of the other features. So it talks about global and fast scheduling, um, and this is really uh, about trying to well, trying to do a number of things. But one of the core pieces here seems to be um, trimming down the amount of time needed to spin up new containers. And in fact, the, the, some of the statistics here, I think, are particularly uh, mind-blowing. So the, the scheduler can now allocate 3,000 containers per second. Um, now I, I don't know what some of the previous numbers were. It talks about 10x throughput gains, um, which I think is is particularly interesting when we're seeing um, a lot more shorter-lived um, jobs coming up. You know, when we talk about uh, you know, interactive and real-time workloads coming to Hadoop, that's becoming you know, significantly more interesting and significantly more important to be able to spin up these containers, get the get the results as quickly as possible, and then you know, tear down the containers ready for the next set of uh, requests that come in. So, a lot of the focus seems to be. Um, around making things far more responsive, you know, from the ground up, from the yarn level, all the way through to, you know, things like Hive and LLAP and that sort of stuff. Yeah. That's moving uh, Hadoop from the batch era more and more into the interactive era. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, again, you know, another very much um, evolutionary change rather than revolutionary change has been um, working on um, providing the capacities in the capacity scheduler, moving that from uh, sort of percentages, which is what it's been currently, onto uh, actual numbers that you can properly visualize. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not sure about this particular enhancement. I can see where it could be useful or could be interesting. Um, but... One of the things I like about the percentage approach is that it abstracts away some of the underlying, you know, I'm giving it 30 gigs of RAM and, and 30 V cores to this particular uh, queue, and that's then splitting down into other smaller queues. Um, I do wonder what happens to these numbers when you start to add uh, more nodes. Does that... Do, does the uh, does the sort of additional capacity you add just exist as a separate sort of empty to be consumed, and then you have to manually add it? You know, yeah. The nice thing about percentages is is if it's a percentage of the whole, you can then it just gets distributed throughout. But then I don't know. I can see both sides of it. Yeah, I'm but just it says not on the slide, right? Decided. A few challenges: percentage-based capacity is resilient to any change yeah. in the cost of resource, and the numbers numerically aren't. The bad yeah. side, one percentage value for all resource types. So if you want to specify memory and V cores separately, yeah. you couldn't do it at percentages. So yeah, exactly. I guess it's 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 it gives you more control, mm -hmm. but it does add more complexity. So it gives just, you more responsibility. Yeah, indeed, indeed. But very useful, very useful. I can see where it could be be useful, but I think I. I would advertise caution in sort of going down that route unless you, you have very specific reasons for adopting it. Yeah. Um, again, moving on. So now we're on to resource profiles and custom resource types. And this is something I can definitely see being um, far, more, um, far more interesting and far more useful as people are doing more different and interesting things on Hadoop. 
So, you know, the previous sort of resource profiles was basically memory and CPU. How much memory do you want to allocate? How many CPU cores do you want to allocate? And that was pretty much it. Um, now you can create custom resource types. Uh, the the typical example that's uh, that's shown here is obviously GPUs. If you want to run uh, some TensorFlow, um, you'll ideally want to run that on GPU enabled nodes, and you'll want to um, apply uh, resource restrictions uh, against that. So again, you can use multi, uh, you can use Yarn to contain and to constrain how much resource you're allocating to particular jobs. Um, the nice thing about this is that it's, uh, although the example is GPU, uh, it does talk about the fact that it's actually a, a custom, uh, they call it a generalized vector. It's a custom um, resource type that you can define. So it's not just specifically for GPUs, but it could be for other things um, that come down the line later on. So maybe extra fast SSD or... Um, some sort of additional coprocessor environment or who knows, um, yep. you know, particularly fast networking. Who Internet, knows? FPGAs in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which nicely actually leads us into GPUs on Yarn. Um, and this stuff, by the way, is new. This wasn't uh, in the uh, presentation I saw it in uh, Munich. Yeah, it very much so. So this is this is the same as the as or the same title as a previous session, Yarn Past, Present, and Future. But again, as, as when we were talking at the beginning of our previous episode, you know, a lot of these sessions, yes, they are similar, but they're alive. We're talking about well, yeah. Well, I mean, we're talking about what um, eight, seven or eight months between the, pre, the between the first summit that ran. And where we are, you know, when this summit ran, so a lot of you know, even in that sort of six months period, a lot of lot of things have taken place. A lot of work has moved on. So the sessions have also evolved. Um, and yeah, that's one of the reasons why I attended some of these core sessions is that I knew some of this stuff would have changed since my my previous exposure to it. So yeah, GPUs on Yarn are now a thing. Um, and it, it talks about the fact that there are actually um, uh, a number of different ways that you can expose GPUs um, to the containers. And so it talks about uh, give the, the full device only to that particular user for the lifetime of that container. Um, give multiple devices only to that person for the lifetime of the container. Give the full device or devices only to me for a portion of the lifetime of the container and give a slice of the device to me for a full or a portion of the lifetime of the container. So it's really getting very granular into how you can allocate um, sort of GPU resources um, to particular uh, workloads on Yarn, and yeah, I think that's makes full sense, of course, because a lot of your workloads will have parts like uh, feature screening, feature selection, which doesn't use a GPU at all. And if it's yeah. being assigned to that container for all the time, it's just a very piece, expensive piece of uh, equipment in that in the chassis, and you need to yeah optimize its use. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so there is not a Jira listed on that, but. Uh, I think that's the, it's an area that I'm kind of interested in understanding exactly how 
that all works because how how do you trigger the sort of the 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 portion of that uh, yeah, that lifetime. You need to have an API, right, to have that uh, yeah. interaction there. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping this is available in Spark because uh, Spark more and more is moving towards a deep learning uh, where you have some yeah. uh, TensorFlow stuff in there. And yeah. Yeah, very much so. Okay, so now we are moving on to uh, really scaling here. So Yarn Federation, um, hundreds of thousands of nodes, and dividing. Uh, how you sort of essentially have one uh, one virtual cluster split up into multiple subclusters. Um, I I think that I can I can obviously see that the, you know the large organisations in this world are going to make very heavy use of this. Um, I don't think this is something that we're going to see general adoption across everybody anytime soon. Well, I can see a use where I have a DR disaster recovery uh, solution where I have two clusters geographically split from each other just in case a Boeing goes down. Mm-hmm. Those don't necessarily have to be big clusters, but your standby cluster, for lack of a better name, isn't doing anything. So typically that's a bit of a, a weaker cluster, more storage-based or something like that. With something like this, you could actually have applications where, which aren't too time critical launch wherever space is available, even on the other, uh, the backup cluster, if you like. Yeah. So I do see some usability there to, to kind of uh, rationalize the cost of having a disaster reco- uh, recovery solution in place. Before yeah. it's just, yeah, if I actually, I hope I'll never use it, but I'm paying for it anyway. <laughs> yeah. While yeah. with this, it gives you more of a dual active cluster availability for some workloads which aren't uh, hyper latency critical. Yeah. And of course, what, what it will depend on really is on the, on the slide, you can see there's that, there's a sort of a, a state store, if you like, and a, a set of routes, a set of routers along the, along the edge. And what, you know, its use within that space will depend on how this, this routing concept work, how this state store work. Can the state store be, uh, be replicated between two different environments? Or, you know, would it need to be in a third environment? What happens if the state store goes down? Yeah, you know, no, lots that and lots needs to be of high available. <laughs> exactly, lots and lots of uh, uh, of questions to be answered. But it yeah. it definitely heading in the the right direction. It also looks like you will be communicating with one resource manager, and the resource manager in question will then see if someone else is better equipped to run your workload. Yeah, or maybe yeah. It'll just see if it's going to schedule locally, and if not, then see if somebody else is available. Which both yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much it's pretty, so. Pretty transparent. That's nice. Yeah. Um, so again, moving on. Um, so now, yarn placement strategies. Yeah, you know, where do you want stuff to run? Do you want it to run next to something? Do you want to run it not next to something? Do you want to run it under specific nodes? All now supported. The example uh, with the sunshine and the database uh, is a storm and HBase and wanting to run them together or not together. It's funny um, that the sunshine is usually a solar hike and storm is yeah, more of a raindrop. <laughs> I, I query some of the uh, some of the choices used for, for objects in some of these slides, but there we go. Um, again, next, this is probably some of the bigger news, I think, um, that's coming with uh, Yarn 3, and that's you know support for Docker containers. Now, I am I'm curious to see how this adoption will go. I can see some sort of I can definitely see some usage of Docker on Yarn, um, but 
there are you know docker scheduling frameworks out there that are already very mature and have very advanced functionality mm-hmm. and i think i'm still not sure that i see yarn as a general purpose docker scheduler i think it's it's got a place where you have data driven applications the data's on hadoop you 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 want to be able to spin the docker containers tightly coupled up to hadoop then i think that makes perfect sense and i think my take on it is that's where this is focused. Well, I see it in the long-running uh, services where I have a Spark thing doing a batch tree, uh, a micro batching streaming, and mm-hmm. I need a website that just shows a dashboard. It's very hard to install. Uh, I don't know my own Nginx and Perl and whatever libraries I'm using in that web front end on the Hadoop cluster itself. I would have to need it put in a separate cluster, separate place. And if it's a small thing, if I can put it into the Docker container, give it to Yarn and say, keep this up all the time. Yeah. That makes sense for me. And the second use case I see is uh, Hadoop is a kind of HPC. It's a cheap HPC for compared to the big um, uh, infinite band clusters. But sometimes the Hadoop cluster is what you have. And yes, you can spin up a Mesos cluster or Kubernetes cluster to your Docker farm, whatever. But that's a separate cluster, and I don't have that. But I only need to have like five containers running for two weeks. Well, okay, leverage the Hadoop cluster. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Why not? That's more my uh, stance. Fair enough. Fair enough. And in fact, that quite nicely leads on to the the next thing, which is... I do my best. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, simplified. You're obviously reading ahead. Simplified <laughs> APIs for service definitions, and in fact, it's talking about um, really Yarn exposing a REST API layer, so you can control some of these services. And in fact, there's a a code snippet that shows <laughs> Nginx. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really didn't look there before. <laughs> so you, all we can say is Yarn is just that good. Um, Psychic. Indeed, psychic or psychotic, we're not quite sure. But I know which I prefer. The idea to, the idea to spawn new services, manage them, control them through a REST API um, is, you know, if you're going to do container management, um, you need to expose those uh, those kind of APIs to make it work. Uh, actually, a side question: We've talked in previous episode about the idea of having the same uh, the same product, multiple versions on the same cluster. So have Spark three and Spark two at the, the in the same cluster at the same time. Mm-hmm. We then talked, I think it was about the Java parts or the 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 the, the part environments that not all the DLL all the libraries were set in the correct parts uh, specifications, and that had a bit of leakage. Docker could, of course, solve that problem too. Yep. So do you think that they're also looking at that aspect? I haven't heard I think, anything. I think it's I think all options are on the table right now. <laughs> That's an easy that, answer. Well, I mean I, I I don't think there is a clear this is the absolute way that this must be done. But I, I think that um multi service is it has to happen. It has to be something that's supported because it's something that people critically need yep. the, the decoupling of services from underlying hdfs was sort of something that was started you know quite some time ago but i think it needs this kind of decoupling at the compute level to be really truly effective yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah i think it's it's definitely one of the options that's on the table exactly how exactly which option wins out i i don't know i don't know where that's going to end up but 
Actually, that that leads us again nicely onto service support. Um, So here we're talking about uh, application and service upgrades. So how do you how do you upgrade just your Spark and HBase apps with uh, minimal impact to your end users? So dealing with separating out, I just want to update my Spark and HBase, not my entire cluster. Um, and so that that's a, a core part of what's coming. And again, there's a yarn four seven two six for those that want to uh, dive into more detail. And then there's also the the service registry um, that we talked about uh, when we were talking about the Hadoop 3.0. So that's Yarn 4757. Again, just a DNS-based service discovery mechanism. Um, I think what we're, what we're definitely seeing a move to is more dynamic components within the data lake. Um, you know, something spinning up, being there for a period of time, spinning down, and you know, not having stuff hard coded to to worry about that, but instead have have services that you can reach out to when you need them. Um, so moving forward now, the sort of the service framework. Now this bit was particularly unclear to me, um, and so. All I can comment on is there are a number of uh, JIRAs here, so YARN 4692 and 875, that I think require more more um, investigation before I can talk about them uh, in any level of depth. Yeah, it feels a bit like they're trying to go the direction of uh, Docker Swarm, Mesos kind of functionality. Yeah. Supporting yeah. a tag of apps and things like that, which I guess if you have Docker there, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So kind of uh, coming towards the end of it now, and really what better way to end with than a nice, pretty web UI. Um, the, the Yarn UI has been uh, a little bit clunky for a while. We've had sort of, I guess you could call it patches on top of that with things like um, the Ambari Capacity Scheduler view, which has given a nice way of, of viewing your capacity scheduler um, elements and being able to change those. But the Yarn UI itself has been a little bit clunky. It reminds me of the old um, the old Storm UI. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is now, you know, we've had a lot of, lot of input into this, and you can see nice sort of views of your uh, cluster resource utilization, you know, finished apps versus running apps, node managers, um, integrated nicely with the the timeline service as we move on so things like the application history you know all that sort of diagnostic as you know where did containers actually run why is an application slow is it really slow or has something changed um, you know why are different applications failing all of that sort of day-to-day sort of troubleshooting um, so cluster history uh, being able to collect and use sort of past data using all of this stuff for far better. Um, capacity scheduling, um, and uh, really, you know, that's that's sort of uh, it, sort of winding up. So the the, the last sort of real uh, content slide I thought was quite amusing. Um, sort of analysing Hadoop clusters is becoming a big data problem. <laughs> um, I've always said that one of the things that uh, that Hadoop does very well. Um, yes, you can use it to 
uh, analyze and process, uh, analyze, store and process data at scale. Uh, but it's also very good at generating log files. And in fact, you know, we've 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 had previous sessions on things like SmartSense that have been talking about you know using big data to analyze big data. Um, and that's that's very much the sort of some of the things that are coming in with the, the the latest version of the timeline service using a lot of the application metadata that's generated to you know find more detailed metrics about you know which users are hammering the system um, which are which sort of bad long-running jobs do we have you know who's kind of submitting jobs with bad configurations things like that so um, you know the 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 concepts within Hadoop are becoming more and more complex, and we're needing to do a better job of providing clear guidelines to help people optimize what they're doing. I think this overall yarn is is seems to me at least to be heading in the right direction to try and sort of improve that uh, that user experience and improve the optimization. We're no longer in the stage of um, you know how do I get a data lake running on yarn it's it's about okay i've been running this for a year or two now um it's 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 starting to get you know widespread adoption across my organization but lots of things are now you know high priority critical how do i balance this um and i think this is a a good step in the right direction to try and address some of these concerns yep okay i'm afraid Fair enough. In that case, we will leap straight into uh, another Casey Stella session, this time model as a service. Yeah, let's go through this a little bit faster because we're heading for another long episode. Fair enough. So in that case, um, thoroughly recommend. So this is one of the sessions that is previously recorded, is quite similar to um, one of the uh, sessions at the San Jose Summit. And essentially, it's it's talking about model as a service as a generic um, requirement within uh, an organization, within the big data picture. But it is talking about specifically how model as a service is implemented within uh, Metron. Um, it talks about a lot of the core concepts around, um, you know, why you would want to do um, machine learning within cybersecurity. Uh, it talks a lot about uh, where Metron came from um, and why Metron and cybersecurity is a good fit. Um, but then it sort of very quickly goes on to um, why model as a service is useful or interesting in this space. Um, so think about... Um, machine learning models in cybersecurity, if you're trying to keep um, the throughput of your data as real-time as possible, you know, machine learning is not real-time. So anytime you, you know, it's, uh, shell out to a machine learning model, you're going to introduce significant latency to um, your conversation, to your, uh, your overall data flow. So model as a service um, takes care of this through um, parallelization of uh, running multiple instances of a model and really you know, takes control of, of that, uh, that overall framework. So you can have a, um, uh, a sort of 
a model registry, if you like, that uh, contains you know a variety of different versions of any given model. So maybe you've got a a model that detects um, generated domain names that, that are often used for command and control. So you would have uh, an object coming through that has just the element of the uh, the, the domain name of a particular URL that someone was browsing to, or it looks like someone was browsing to, um, pass that into a machine learning model to, to say, is this likely to be a valid URL, or is it more likely to be um, some sort of uh, generated domain name that's used for a command and control service? So the model as a service architecture is really built to allow um, models to be spun up and controlled by the model as a service. So how many instances of a model do you want to spin up? Um, how do you cycle through, if you update the model, um, how do you cycle through refreshing those those containers so they have the latest version of the model? Um, how do you pass the, the objects to the models? So model as a service has relatively few um, limitations. All, all it requires the models to, to do is basically support a RESTful API interface for receiving a JSON object, um, starting, stopping, uh, and registering themselves. That's pretty much it. Um, so the model itself can be Spark, can be Python, can be R, could even be a Bash script for all you uh, for all you wanted. Well, I'm not sure that there's many there's much machine learning done in Bash. <laughs> That's possible. <laughs> Anything is possible. So then, in in true uh, in true Casey style, there's uh, code and then live demos of showing how to deploy models using the model of a service. Um, not in the slides, but thoroughly recommend taking a look at the session. Uh, he then also talks about other things that are uh, you know coming in the future that he'd like to add to their model of a service concept but very good if you're interested in model as a service generally or model as a service within metron yeah again thoroughly recommend uh, taking a look at that session all right so the next two um so the next session was protecting your critical hadoop clusters against disasters jeff spazetti uh sankar harapan um talked about critical Hadoop clusters. What it was really talking about was Hive. It was very, very Hive-focused. Um, I, I get it. It's a, it's a big focus. It's something that's always of interest, kind of how to deal with, um, how to deal with uh, backup, how to deal with DR. Backup and DR are two separate concerns. They are obviously related. And this session went through a reasonably sort of deep-ish dive on how to achieve DR and replication and backup and restoration across uh, a Hive-based or a Hive-focused, I should say, uh, data lake. Um, so there's a couple of um, use cases that they talk about. Talk about so disaster recovery of Hive and HDFS, replication of content to cloud storage. Um, some of the pros and cons of each of these, and then you know a deep dive on replicating Hive, um, followed by a demo. Um, what can I say? If you're interested in understanding how to replicate Hive and HDFS, 
probably a very good session for you. <laughs> um, it it was it was a bit it was a bit too high focus for me. I think there's I I tend to um, look at things far more generally, and I, I like to see the the larger picture than just hive. But certainly, if you're looking at a hive focused answer to that, um, it's a it's a good session. There's some good notes there, and in fact, the, the demo was really just showing look. Uh, here's a table on this cluster. Look, I've replicated it here. So, as t- take of that as you will. Okay. And then final session, uh, running Zeppelin in production. Um, I came into this session a little bit late as I had a, a, a meeting that overran, but um, very similar to a previous session I saw at uh, DataWorks. Uh, summit in San Jose, um, and really just uh, a, a very brief introduction to Zeppelin as a whole. I, there was a, a, a show of hands towards the start as to you know who knew what Zeppelin was, uh, how many people were already using Zeppelin, how many people were already using Zeppelin in production, um, and how many people were using uh, other notebook platforms as well, things like uh, uh, DSX and so on. Um, the majority of people in the audience were Zeppelin users of some way, shape, or form, which was which was quite interesting to see. Rather than Jupiter, there were there were a, a smaller proportion of Jupiter users as well, though. And really, you know, if if you're using Zeppelin uh, and you're running up against um, sort of any performance issues or constraints or wondering how to do certain things, um, this was a one of those decks that. Um, really, a lot of it you could just read through. Um, there was not necessarily um, too much added um, sort of by the presenter. It was definitely more focused on, um, you know, follow a lot of these sort of steps and you'll get a, a good idea as to how you can use um, Zeppelin and how you can scale your use of Zeppelin uh, more uh, more accurately and more um, in a more stable fashion. Yeah, looking through the slides, it does uh, hit quite a bit on uh, uh, multi-tenancy, concurrency, uh, user authentication, yep. and those were things that traditionally were very weak in Zeppelin and Jupyter as well, actually. Mm-hmm. So it uh, does show that there's a lot of advancements going on there, and having a multi-tenant, secure Zeppelin environment apparently seems possible. What I can't get from the slides is how much of this is included in any of the distributions out there and how much of this is uh, cobbled yourself together. Or cobbled together yourself, I should say. Yeah, so my understanding is that all of this is currently supported in HDP. Okay. Um, I, I can't speak to other distributions, but as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, everything there is, is currently supported. And it, it's really just a collection of... Of best practices around, uh, as you say, the, the yeah. scalability. As you say, it's best practices, but I haven't seen an Ambari view to set this up. It's all go to this text file, start typing some JSON, some uh, XML, some stuff. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I mean. In a production still environment, some usability to be done, yeah, work exactly. to be done. Especially yeah, when you're talking exactly. about, so. I mean, it does have connection with the Active Directory or LDAP, so any kind of group access rights you can set up that way. But still, it would be nice to have some. I would I would love to see in the Zeppelin interface itself a little tab admin or something like that where you can just set the stuff up. Yeah, yeah. As you say, a, a nice Ambari view to guide through this would be would be very welcome. Exactly. 
All right. Yeah. So I would, um, I'd like to say, first of all, uh, for anybody listening, uh, you know, thanks so much to anybody that I spoke to um, for spending time with me. It was, it was a, the atmosphere there was absolutely great. The coffee was good. I'll mention it again because it's really important in conferences to have at least palatable coffee. Uh, they got that right. Uh, and yes, and plenty of it. Um, the people that I talked through during the sessions, um, and after the sessions and at the breaks were, you know, thoroughly welcoming, um, happy to talk about what they were doing. And the audience as a whole was, was really very positive about, you know, everything that was, was happening around, around big data. There was, there were loads of great stories about what people were doing, um, you know, how they'd overcome challenges and, and how they managed to deliver some real benefit to their organizations. So yeah, I'd like to, you know, thoroughly thank anybody and everybody that I spoke to. Um, and again, thank you for Autumn Works for sending me. <laughs> and not sending me, give you some free time. <laughs> Indeed. Time away from Jan is always very precious. <laughs> well, on that note, that is all the time we have for today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the Hadoopcast tag, and you can contact us by email by sending emails to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and feedback. We read every one. Until next time, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. See you then.